I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. As soon as she attained the age of reason, she was ambitious and commanding. Even at the most tender age, and as small as she was, she showed this inclination in charted games. She always gave orders to the other children, and nothing was done without her commands. As a child, she was reported to be dominating by nature. She decided which games to play, and always wanted to win. The story of Olympia Medalkini by Gregorio Letti, 1666. Hello and welcome to The Other Half. Episode 4.19, Olympia Medalkini, Electing a Female Pope. For the past three mini-series, we have been deep in the sacred hall of the Italian Renaissance, an era known for its art and learning, but also as a cesspool of violence and corruption. All three of the women that we've covered from that period, Caterina Sforza, Lucrezia Borgia and Felice della Rovere, were products of that time, and achieve success by understanding the rules of the game. All three were illegitimate, born of mistresses, and two of them to popes, but were fortunate to have been born at a time when that was neither unusual nor particularly disadvantageous. They were also all born into privilege, rank, and wealth. Today, we move a little beyond this period to a very different woman, one who was born into very little, and whose partnership with her brother-in-law would see her become the true power behind the throne of St. Peter. But before we get going, I would like to thank all of my Patreon supporters who keep the show on the road. Remember, my Patreon backers will get to vote on the topic for the next season. So if you'd like to exercise that democratic right and support the show in the process, then head on over to patreon.com forward slash the other half podcast. To all my new listeners, welcome. To the rest of you, welcome back.
Sforza Medalchini was a man with a fancy name, but not much else. He had humble origins, but managed to gain that most respectable and loved of positions in society, tax collector. While this didn't endear him to his neighbours, it did give him access to some of the wealthiest and most influential people in Viterbo, an ancient city about 50 miles north of Rome. He rose through the ranks diligently, building his wealth, power and prestige to a level far higher than he could have dreamt of when he started. He'd already married once and had a son, but he was now a widower and wanted a second wife to further increase his progeny and social standing. He used his social connections to secure the hand in marriage of a local nobleman's daughter, Vittoria Galtieri, which gave him a fancy house and, most importantly, the potential to found a new noble dynasty. He had hoped for another son, but instead got something much better. A daughter whom he named Olympia, born on the 26th of May, 1591. Now, our knowledge of Olympia's early life is somewhat limited. Her first biographer, Gregorio Levy, writing a few years after her death, described her as a natural leader and influencer from an early age. Unlike many of the other women in the series, she didn't have a particularly extensive education. The Protestant Reformation posed the greatest existential threat to the Western Church in centuries, and led many members of the Roman flock turning to this new heresy. The papacy reacted with the equally important, though less talked about, counter-reformation, started at the Council of Trent, a conservative reaction that sought to shore up Rome's defences and return it to its original values. This led them to clamp down on a number of things, including female education. You see, women who were given a proper education were not instilled with strong, wholesome, wifely values. What need does a mother and a homemaker have of learning? They would never have power in government or business, so why should they learn about art, philosophy or politics? Basically, the solution was for the Catholic Church to control their women. What a refreshing turn of pace. Olympia had it better than some. Her aunt was a nun, so she was educated in a convent. So she would have learned how to read and write in Italian, do basic arithmetic, enough to run a household at least, and so... This was undoubtedly useful, but her real education came in her father's office. It seems clear that she spent a considerable amount of time there, sponging everything she saw into her brain. She had a phenomenal memory and a superb mind for business. She sat in the corner of the room and saw her father, a master of his craft, and resolved to be just like him. He may have been a master of business and schmoozing, but Sforza-Medalchini wasn't exactly father-of-the-year material. His second marriage had not resulted in the sons he so badly wanted. Indeed, Olympia would soon be followed by two younger sisters, which left him in something of a quandary. Marrying his daughters into good, noble families would be expensive. The dowry would have to be generous. But marrying down would impact his social standing. He couldn't have that either. So, Scrooge McMadalkini took option three. He sent all three daughters to a convent. This, for him, was the least bad option. It would mean that his son would inherit an estate that had not been crippled by dowry payments. But here's the thing. While her younger sisters obediently obeyed their father's orders, 
15-year-old Olympia said, No, this was unheard of. Children were supposed to honour their father in all things. It was like the army, only more strict. Interestingly, though, Olympia did have the law on her side. Since the Council of Trent, it had been decreed that no father could force his daughter into a convent against their wishes. This was a ruling to prevent this very thing from taking place. Sforza did everything in his power to get Olympia to comply. Her brother was dispatched to persuade her. Her aunt, the Mother Superior, extolled the benefits of convent life. After all, it offered the best route to management a woman had, the opportunity to run essentially her own estate and administer over her own flock. With this carrot came the stick. Her actions were dishonouring the family name, and she was dragging everyone through the mud. An embarrassment. A priest was ordered to follow her around, haranguing her night and day. She later alleged that he also sexually abused her. At this, Olympia snapped. She wrote the local bishop, an honourable man, about what was happening to her, and he put a stop to it. The priest was thrown in jail, and Sforza Maidalkini was forbidden from sending Olympia to a convent. She had taken on the patriarchy, and had won. But her victory had come at a price, for she was now tainted by scandal. Damaged goods. Who would want a spoiled uppity wife? She sounds like a lot more trouble than she's actually worth. So for the next couple of years, she effectively withered on the vine. But eventually, she did attract the attention of a suitor. Paolo Nini was a wealthy 20-year-old who had recently inherited an extensive portfolio of vineyards, properties and farms. He was also related to quite a few influential churchmen. And he had the hearts for Olympia. We actually know pretty little about him. So it's unclear what attracted him to Olympia. Perhaps he liked her independent streak. Perhaps her charms entranced him. Whatever it was, despite her offering minimal tangible benefit financially or in terms of patronage, they married in September 1608. This was an outcome beyond her wildest dreams. She was married to a young, vigorous man with wealth and standing. She had avoided the nun's cloister and could look forward to a comfortable life. She quickly did her wifely duty as well. Their first child sadly died after only a few months of life, but next came a healthy son with the rather unfortunate name of Nino Nini. He survived, but his father tragically did not. We don't know how or why, but at the age of just 23, Paolo Nini died, leaving Olympia a widow at just 20 years old. And, even more tragically, he was later followed into the grave by his son, Nino, only nine months later. This avalanche of tragedy must have hit Olympia hard. It's a myth that parents in a time of high infant mortality did not share the same grief at the death of their children as we do today. They did, and losing two children and her husband in the space of fewer than three years must have been heartbreaking. But she did have one consolation, because her husband now had no living heirs. All of his land, property and wealth passed to his widow. Olympia was now the proud owner of palaces, inns, stables, farms, vineyards, houses and a great deal besides. She was an extremely wealthy woman, possibly one of the richest independent women in the Papal States. 
For a woman in this period, as I've said before, being a wealthy widow was pretty much the dream. But achieve this so young came with problems. Such an attractive young woman couldn't remain on the marital shelf for long. People would talk, rumours spread, slander, dished. Unless she wanted to follow her sisters into a convent, and there was no chance of that, she had to remarry. But at the very least, now she could do so on her own terms. Money she had. What she wanted now was position. Paolo may have been minted, but he was not of noble birth. He was not a lord, a duke or a prince. He was also based in the relative backwater of Viterbo. She wanted to be where the real action was. Rome. She also had a taste for what it meant to run her own affairs, and she also wanted that in her next marriage. Her husband would have to be a relatively placid man, someone willing to let her have her own way and run his affairs for him. And, as luck would have it, just such a man was ready and waiting for her. Her uncle had recently married into the Panfili, a minor Roman noble family with a history of serving in the church. They'd had a cardinal on the family, Girolamo Panfili, but he had died in 1610 along with his brother, leaving the family in a tricky situation. They had noble blood, but didn't have two pennies to rub together. The two men at the head of the family were Panfilio and his younger brother, Gian Battista, who was a priest. Panfilio was 50 years old, and we're not sure why he was on the marriage market. It's most likely he was a widower, though it is possible he was a long-term bachelor. Whatever the reason, it was imperative that he marry into money to save the family. He needed money, she needed a title. It was the perfect match. On their marriage, which was celebrated with all pomp and circumstance in Rome, she became Lady or Donna Olympia, and the mistress of her palace on the Piazza Navona, the same place, coincidentally, that Felice della Rovere had set up home a century prior, though their residence was quite a bit less fancy. If Olympia had hoped that this marriage would see her immediately catapulted into the world of the powerful and influential, she was quickly disappointed. Her husband was traditionally minded. For him, the woman's place was not in the world of politics or business. He thought that his new wife should spend most of her time talking with other women. But here's the thing. Olympia didn't care much for the sisterhood. Much like Margaret Thatcher, she preferred the company of men. She made all the right social calls and kept up appearances, but she saw female conversation as frivolous and pointless. This speaks to her ambition and the rather frosty welcome she had received when she arrived in Rome. These fancy women looked down on her as a common yokel, a nouveau riche little parvenu who had lucked into wealth and bought a title. But while the female glitterati didn't care for her right away, there was one that took to her pretty much immediately, and that was her brother-in-law, Jean Battista. He had been a bit of a wild child, and was sent into the priesthood to sober up. Unlike most of his Renaissance predecessors, this actually seems to have worked, and he spent far less time partying than many of his contemporaries in Rome. He was variously intimidated and bored by most of the men that surrounded him, and tended to seek out women for counsel and company. Along with being a priest, his job was as auditor of Rome's civil court, so his days were spent buried in documents. 
This bored most people to tears, but for Olympia, it was never quite so amped up as when she was dealing with admin. This was the most fascinating chat she had heard since arriving in Rome. She was sharp, attentive, and above all, wise. She offered sage advice, asked interesting questions, and was pretty much always proven to be right. Where he was indecisive, she cut right through it. She was his magic eight ball, his fortune teller. Before too long, whenever he had a difficult decision to make, a judgment call of note, he would always consult her. They were thick as thieves, spending vast amounts of time together. We don't know what her husband thought about all of this, but he likely didn't mind too much. He had his own business to attend to. Olympia made it clear what her intentions were. She wants to use her skills, intellect and wealth to get Jean-Baptiste elected Pope. This would not be a simple or a quick thing to achieve. He was pretty low down on the ladder. Although any Catholic could theoretically be made Pope, realistically you had to be a cardinal in order to be considered. And how did you become a cardinal? Well, the easiest route was by becoming a papal ambassador or nuncio to a foreign court. A foreign posting would give him the exposure, experience and connections to rise through the ranks at the Vatican. Until he had met Olympia, his career had stalled precisely because he lacked the nous and social skills to grease the wheels of patronage. This was where Olympia could help. She threw parties and soirees. She ingratiated herself with the great and good. She won over the snobs and established herself as one of Rome's great hostesses. She remembered every detail of every conversation she ever had. She inquired about nieces and nephews, remembered birthdays and anniversaries of even the loosest acquaintances. She was knowledgeable about the smallest of details, and she essentially carried Jean-Baptiste on a wave of her own charm and wit. She knew that it was not through merit that papal offices were dispensed. It was at the dinner table, in the quiet corners, the water coolers of early modern Rome. Crucial to her plans was to make friends in high places, and one of the most crucial at this time was Alessandro Ludovici. Before becoming a cardinal, he had been a canon lawyer and served in the same office that Jean-Baptiste now had. The three quickly hit it off, and this paid off big time in 1621, when Ludovici was elected as Pope Gregory XV. In one of his first pronouncements, he appointed Jean-Baptiste as nuncio to the Kingdom of Naples. The Panfiles were now headed for the big time. Naples was a plum posting for the Pamphiles. Part of the Spanish crown, it was a highly prestigious court and home to one of Italy's largest cities. It was not the most lucrative job, though. The salary sucked, and there were innumerable calls on one's purse. Bribes, gifts and grifts and the like were simply the cost of doing business and were expenses that could not be reimbursed. It was a hefty financial burden, but the rewards could be massive. It put you in the shop window like few other postings. 
and there was no way that Giambattista could have got there or afforded to remain there without Olympia. Her money, connections and counsel were essential, but of course this was only the first step on the yellow brick road. Although she spent most of her time with her brother-in-law, she did find a few moments to conceive some children. Shortly before leaving Rome, she had born a daughter called Maria, and not long after, a son, Camillo. So not only had she helped the family rise in social standing, but she'd also given it a future, an heir. They would be in Naples for the next four years, surviving a change in Pope, and would only be recalled for an even more prestigious posting as nuncio to the Kingdom of Spain. This was the creme de la creme of diplomatic positions. It didn't get much bigger than that. Unfortunately, given that it was so far away, she couldn't join him in Madrid. But it was a sign of how well she had coached him that he managed to hold his own. He had come a long way from the timid, introverted lawyer she had first met all those years ago. Jean-Baptiste was nervous about taking this big step alone and constantly wrote back to Italy seeking advice and affirmation. She also worked hard behind the scenes, and that hard work paid off in 1627 when he was given his red hat. Fifteen years after they had met, Giambattista Pamphili had finally become a cardinal. He was doing so well now that he was no longer financially dependent on Olympia. Madrid was a far more lucrative posting, with innumerable opportunities for officially sanctioned grift. You might then have expected for Giambattista to start distancing himself from Olympia, to try and do it all on his own. He didn't need her money anymore, and had sponged up all she could teach him. But that's not what happened. He remained devoted to her, reliant on her for counsel and wisdom. He could probably do it alone, but could do it better with her. In 1629, he returned home from Spain to take up a posting in Rome, reuniting with Olympia and setting up home in a far fancier palace. She was now mixing in the most exalted social circles, and the tables had finally turned. She was on the inside looking out now, and used her patronage power wisely to secure her position and accrue followers. They were now living in an even larger palace with more servants, and she was able to indulge her love of the arts and theatre by putting on plays and carnivals in her home. This made their palace a thriving salon, ideal for further increasing the influence and prestige of her brother-in-law. And so, for the next ten years or so, everything went swimmingly. I know I'm jumping ahead quite a long way here, but that's because there isn't much to say without being repetitive. Most of what Olympia did was behind closed doors. It isn't documented, but her success is evident for everyone to see. However, in the summer of 1639, she faced her first setback in a long while. Her husband, Panfilio, was suffering from kidney stones and spent a sweltering summer drenched in sweat, vomiting and in severe pain. After a few months, he was dead. Well, I call this a setback, but it's unclear exactly how she felt about her husband's death. She'd married him for position, and she had profited from that. But the primary beneficiary of what she had brought into the marriage, her money and ambition, was not him, but his brother Giambattista. She was also in a very different situation from the last time she'd been widowed. Then she was a childless young woman with almost no social standing. Now she was a 48-year-old great lady of Rome, with heirs and friends in high places. 
Her standing was no longer in doubt. She was, in a sense, now finally free. Now, society still expected widows to respectfully retreat from view, and if they chose not to remarry, then spend the rest of their lives in quiet grief, away from the company of men. Olympia was well aware of this convention. She chose to ignore it. This tended to rub some people up the wrong way. The man to an ambassador, for example, complained that she was, quote, haughty and entered into conversations more than was seemly for a widow and spent many hours gambling. This reference to gambling actually comes up quite a bit. Olympia was a bit of a card shark and loved nothing more than winning other people's money. She was now in control not only of her own vast fortune, but also that of the Panfiles, an honour bestowed on her by Jean-Baptiste, who quite rightly pointed out that she would be far better at it than he. With her children now at marrying age, it was time to figure out what to do with them. Olympia's great wealth meant that there would be no trouble finding money for dowries, so the question was finding the right man and woman. Her elder daughter, Maria, married Marquis Andrea Giustiniani, a man from a wealthy family. Their marriage immediately produced a child, a daughter named imaginatively Olympia, but thankfully was usually called the diminutive Olympiuca. Olympia took an instant shine to her first grandchild and asked to be able to raise her in her own household. The child's parents, disappointed that they had not had a son, were only too happy to oblige. Olympia was so enamoured by her granddaughter indeed that she rewrote her will, leaving all of her family wealth to Olympiuca, which I imagine must have come as a rather nasty surprise to her son Camilo. He wasn't totally written out, he would still inherit his father's money, but that was a drop in the ocean compared to what his niece would inherit. Why did she do this? Well, Camilo was really the pitch-perfect postcard, spoiled rich boy. He was talented on the dance floor, had all the manners, and was great at spending money. But Olympia was a self-made woman. She valued brains and talent, and found both of these things wanting in her son. She saw her granddaughter as a chance to try again, and mould an heir in her own image, which is... Quite a lot of pressure, really, to place on a toddler. But her central obsession in the late 1630s and early 1640s was the fulfilment of her decades-long plan to make Jean-Baptiste Pope. He was now in his 60s, and the current Pope, Urban VIII, was suffering from a severe illness. This may be his last chance to get the throne. The issue was that the man who would likely be in charge of the conclave that would choose the next Pope was not too keen on Giambattista. He was Cardinal Antonio Barberini, the nephew of Pope Urban. Barberini, you see, had been involved in a conspiracy years before that resulted in the death of Giambattista's nephew, and the two have been feuding ever since. Barberini was no fool. He knew that if Giambattista became Pope, then his position, maybe even his life, would be in serious jeopardy. Aside from this feud, there was the broader geopolitical context. This was the time of the Thirty Years' War, the most deadly, vicious and complex conflict in European history to that point. The signs of the war were constantly shifting, but around this time the main combatants saw the Spanish and Holy Roman Empire on one side and France on the other, along with all their allies. 
Now, this is hardly a new phenomenon. The psychodrama between these two factions had dominated papal politics for centuries. Cardinals seeking elevation to the papacy had to choose whether to nail their colours for either of those two sides or play the even riskier role of playing both sides. The people of Rome showed their support for either side by displaying their respective heraldry on their walls and wearing the fashions of either court. Men favouring Spain wore white stockings, red for France. Women favouring Spain tied their hair ribbons to the right, the left for France. And this is just the start. The way you wore your beard, the feather in your cap, all of it had significance. This polarisation made walking the tightrope between both camps extremely difficult. But this was the path that Olympia chose for herself and Jean-Baptiste. They did everything they could to rise above petty factionalism and position the cardinal as, if not a friend of both camps, then at least not their enemy. Essentially, he could be a compromise candidate that both sides could rally behind. Neither evangelically pro-France or pro-Spain, they would be pro-Olympia. In July 1644, the moment for which Olympia had spent the past three decades preparing finally arrived, when Pope Urban died. It was a stiflingly hot summer, sticky and breathless. Malaria was in the air, and the cardinals updated their wills before entering the conclave, so worried were they of dying there. As a quick reminder, the conclave is a period whereby the College of Cardinals shut themselves away from the outside world and decide who the next pope will be. Today, this is a very secretive affair, with the world's media camping out in the Vatican, with hundreds of cameras focused on one small, unassuming chimney that signals when a new pope is elected. I say today because up until relatively recently, the supposedly closeted cardinals leaked like sieves. Though the doors were shut and locked, the cardinals still had to eat and drink, and messages would be passed to and from the conclave when those were brought in. The guards at the door, the waiting staff taking the food in and out would make a killing over these days in kickbacks and bribes. These messages were for a variety of purposes. Some of it was insider information destined for bookmakers, but mostly it was for political gain. The outcome of the papal election could mean big money for those that backed the right horse, and destitution or even death for those that chose poorly. Cardinals sought advice from their allies on the outside in these messages. They asked them to make deals or apply pressure on the friends or families of their fellow voters. Much of the time in the conclave was spent in quiet prayer, but this to and fro of information was the real conduit through which popes were elected. In this election, in 1644, the college had 62 members, the vast majority of which were Italian, so it was highly likely that it would be one of them that would emerge victorious. As usual, the leading candidates were those that identified with the major international factions. The French had a Cardinal Sacchetti in mind, but the Spanish had made up their mind already, and rather surprisingly, they wanted Jean-Baptiste. He had made a tremendous impression on the Habsburgs when he had served as nuncio to Madrid. The French, though, were not so sure. It's not really that they had any particular objection to him personally or to his politics, though they did find his manner a little grating. It was simply that he was favoured by Spain. And the friend of my enemy is my enemy also. 
While Olympia had been Jean-Baptiste's trump card for all of these years, the catalyst behind his rise to the top, his enemies tried to use her against him. The Venetian ambassador gossiped that a Jean-Baptiste papacy, quote, would be subject to female influence due to the boundless affection the cardinal showed to his sister-in-law. Now, if this had been his brother-in-law and not his sister-in-law, this wouldn't have been remarked upon. The unusual and supposedly unnatural nature of female power got the backs up of these haughty old men. The conclave voted twice a day, morning and afternoon, and the early days saw the French candidate receive the most votes, but not enough to win the papacy. Indeed, the pro-Spanish cardinals had received clear orders from Madrid. Cardinal Sacchetti was not to win the papacy at any cost, no matter how high the bribe, how strongly pressure was applied. The Francophile cardinals, led by Barberini, could not get the job done. This went on for weeks, with no sign of either side budging. The heat was unbearable, and some of the number were getting sick, and indeed one of them would actually die there. Olympia was, of course, furiously working behind the scenes. And as time went on, her efforts saw more and more of the pro-French cardinals begin to warm to Jean-Baptiste. But if she and he were to emerge victorious, one man would have to be overcome, Cardinal Barberini. As I mentioned before, he feared that a Pamphili papacy would be disastrous for him personally, seeing him lose his prominent position amongst the cardinals. He needed reassurance, and Olympia could give him that. She smuggled in a message proposing a marriage between her son Camilo to his niece Lucrezia. This would not only bind the two families together in marriage, but would also stop Camilo from ever becoming a cardinal. The position of cardinal-nephew was an incredibly powerful one. Cardinal Barberini had profited from it greatly, and Camilo was Olympia's only son, and Jean-Baptiste's only nephew. This meant that a Pamphili papacy would have no cardinal-nephews, securing Barberini in place. The conclave awoke early in the morning of the 15th of September, 1644, and shuffled in the Sistine Chapel to vote. The result was overwhelming. Jean-Baptiste Pamphili had won. But not everybody was happy. The leader of the pro-French faction furiously shot off a letter to Paris. Quote, Gentlemen, we have just elected a female pope. <laughs> 